welcome to the January edition of uh, Starters and Sides podcast. My name's Neil Davey and I'm in London. And uh, I'm Adam Whisker and I'm in a garden. Is it is it a work gathering? Did, did you not get the email? Uh, no. Have you not brought any kind of booze with you whatsoever? No. no. Should well, I? Is it? <laughs> well, we obviously need an inquiry into why you've not brought any booze with you. I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm unwilling to agree or deny whether we need an inquiry until the existing inquiry. Yeah, I tell you what, there's nothing like a bit of politics to get the uh, the first one of the new year going, is there? Eh? Touch, a, touch a satire there and very funny too. Well, you know, just just for those, uh, thank you for joining us uh, on the podcast. Just for those of you that want to know, we, we're recording this the day after um, our beloved leader admitted that he was at a party, not a party work event, wasn't at the event, was there for 25 minutes, didn't realise it was party, etc, etc. I mean, how so. shit a party does it have to be if you think, oh, it is a work event? Exactly. My other thing, though, is it, it wasn't a party, it was a work event, but his wife was there, which therefore breaks the um, breaks all kinds of... Oh. Stop applying logic to it. <laughs> so she knows government secrets now. That way, that way, madness lies. But she brought her own bottle. Oh, so, she's all right. Yeah. Who knows? I don't know the rules anymore, mate. I don't know the rules. So, what, well, what have you been up to? How was your Christmas? Yeah, it was all right. You know, it was, it was a bit weird. It was one of those. My brother-in-law had COVID. My niece had COVID. Um, so we couldn't really see them properly. I had to wave at them through bedroom windows and all kinds of things. Um, yeah, it was it was one of those, it's probably, it's weird because sort of in the last couple of Christmas or last Christmas, it was kind of like, this was it, this is what you could do. With this, it was just kind of in between. And it, it also felt, it felt strange in so many ways. We went, um, one of my old local pubs that I used to drink in when I lived in Stoke, um, The Hop, great little boozer. I know you've been to I, it. I, I completely agree with your opinion there. Fantastic beers, and it was weird because it's not—it's not a big pub, and we were in the bar, and it was uh, just before Christmas, I think it was, and we're sitting in there having a chat, and then like a group of blokes came in, not particularly rowdy, weren't like causing any trouble, nothing like that. They're just coming for a beer, but it felt kind of weird because then there were lots of people in there, and it felt mm-hmm. well, this this actually doesn't feel quite right. Yep, and it, it, I think. So many people I've spoken to who are, you know, there's actually a few people I've spoken to who actually got COVID over Christmas and were having to self-isolate or actually say it was really nice because all <laughs> they could do was sit and watch TV and drink. Yeah, um, well, yeah I mean, we, we found, I mean, so many things had kind of bits and pieces lined up in the run-up to Christmas. And then people would say, oh, actually, I've got to self-isolate or, um, yeah, I want to see relatives at Christmas, I'm being sensible, do you mind if we take a rain check? And a couple of times we said the same thing. And the speed with which everybody went, oh, no, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> suggested that, yeah, actually, while we, yeah, we really want to support the hospitality industry, but what we all really want to do is stay at home and watch Netflix and, and not get COVID. <laughs> so. I know. But again, that's where you feel, don't you, so much for, for hospitality. Again, there was that uncertainty. I know I spoke on the last podcast that I – Firmly believed he'd locked down, sort of second of Jan or something like that, and which they haven't. Which in some ways you're really glad that they haven't. But then there are so many people that I speak to that are, oh, 
still so nervous about it all. And yes. yeah, and now they're talking again today about reducing isolation times. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I it's I, I to be quite honest, I'm sick of saying, "Oh, I don't know." Yeah, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. I mean, the the, the thing that gets me is this whole kind of, oh, we've got to learn to live with it. So, yeah, absolutely. But what we also need to do is, yeah, live with it. But I'd I'd rather live with it with what the scientists say. And if the scientists say, yeah, we need the the circuit breaker lockdown, we need this or that, that there are plans in place so that to compensate the hospitality industry to do all of these things, that it's just there and it instantly kicks in. Rather than oh we've got to we've got to save the economy, Go, well, well yeah, but what's really good for the economy is not killing your citizens, yeah. <laughs> not killing loads and loads of customers. I, I, I don't know, I'm not an economist, but I've not, I, you know, I didn't do a degree in it or anything. But not killing customers does seem to be if it's not the top thing on your list, it, it should be up there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it can't, um, you know. Economics comes down to supply and demand, and if there's no demand because people are dead, yeah, um, <laughs> ah, that's how they get it. That's what. Yeah, that's what that, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Rishi Sunak, watch your back, mate, because I've got him. <laughs> He's been very conspicuous by his absence. I notice that. Yeah. Anyway, we don't want to get too political, do we? So, no, no, no. What did What did you What did you Did you go out? Did you go anywhere? Did you do we, stuff? We had a very very low key, uh, the usual sort of cooking things. Or uh, saw some family. Um, did some spectacular things with leftovers um the usual the usual christmas pleasures really the most dangerous thing we discovered is that lindor can be ordered by the kilogram and you can choose what number of which flavor and there are 14 flavors of lindor ladies and gentlemen 14 of them yeah and you can choose what you want and they'll package it up very nicely and send it to you within about three days and you can eat it in less than that, we've discovered. So, uh, yeah, very, very dangerous discovery. I, I won't put the link. I'll save everybody else's uh, diet for that. But, uh, yeah, other than that, we've you know, kind of feeling the way back into the, the new year. Seeing last January lasted, what, four bleeding ever. This one is going by the ridiculous speeds. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, as I say, I think it feels a little bit different. I still do feel that there's that, that limbo. Um, I mean, we've we've got out and about a little bit. Um, you know, some of the the more low key kind of not low key, but venues in Manchester, the smaller venues that we know and love, things I've places I've talked about before, like you know, Cask, Jane Eyre, Floyd, some of those little bars that that we love. And um, we've gone a little bit further afield. We went to the Buxton Tap in Buxton, fantastic. Uh, chicken schnitzel burger that I had there. Went back to Mackie Mare, which I know you've been to. Uh, great place um, that we we had some food. You have to excuse me, by the way, if if you hear sniffing in between. I haven't got the c word, but I've got a massive cold. Um, I have so, no jokes about c word. No joke at all. Um, but one of the things I did want to say was, I, obviously, on the beer front with me, you know, important, obviously. I'm not doing any of that dry, dry January shit, no. But I've come across a, a fantastic, for those that you are doing dry January or you're looking at, you want to have three alcohol-free nights a week and things like that, there's a grapefruit IPA um, from Van der Street that I had the other day, which it's, it, I think it's 0.5%. It's just phenomenal. They do a sour as well. Um, 
but yeah, amazing. So any of you that are still at the point where you're looking for beer-related stuff to drink during dry January, I can highly recommend Van der Street's. Um, they're, they're non-alcoholic stuff. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Just just as a side, you know, just well, to throw that in there. Starters, starters and the sides. There we go. Starters <laughs> and the sides. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. I know I'm with you. My long-standing argument was when people said they were doing dry January, knowing far too many publicans and restaurateurs who really needed people to carry on buying wine and beer. So my, my argument was if everyone else is doing dry January, I shall pick up their slack. Yeah. Um, I think these days do try and be a little more sensible throughout the year. And like you, on the other night, went to see some people and I'd taken, I'd, I'd been sent some kind of non-alcoholic um, spirits, if you like. Um, best of which was something called Sprigster. Um, makes a really, really tasty drink. Has the right mouthfeel. So everybody else on gin and tonics, I had that and tonic. It slows you down. It, you, you've got the right viscosity. It feels like a, you don't, it's not something you want to neck. Just a really good, tasty drink, but with that kind of slightly thicker mouthfeel that you kind of need rather than make you think you're drinking, I don't know, juniper squash or something. And the same with the beers. Um, I know I've had a couple of things with you uh, from Coast who are now called Brulo, B-R-U-L-O. Also phenomenal zero-alcohol beers, Uh, a couple of which, if you get them on draft in particular, you'd really, really struggle to tell them apart from the alcoholic ones. Massive flavours, really, really good products. I think it's a lot easier this year um, than it was a few years ago to do the zero and low-alcohol thing. There's... I think, I think what's really interesting, though, isn't it, mate, is that it's about, it's almost about um, ritual or it's about, um, you know, society and the social aspect of drinking, if you like, that you're, it's not that you're going, oh, I'm drinking a, a non-alcoholic drink or whatever. It's the fact that even the thing of putting the drink to your lips and you're chatting to people and it's the, the whole experience that, you're not there with a Diet Coke. You're kind of, you feel like you're part of what's going on, even yeah. though you're not drinking. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I mean our, our days of, of going out and getting absolutely bladdered are mostly behind us. Um, Speak but... for yourself. I'm going to a garden party later. <laughs> yeah, work gathering. So work gathering. Um, it's, yes, yeah, so I think I mean, we, we typically slow down as, as, men of a certain age probably should but it is it's a lot easier to to do it as you say it's it, you want that social interaction you, i'm not going out even when i do go out to drink i'm not going out to get drunk per se it's as you say it's a ritual it's you want to be it's a shared experience i remember when um uh brew dog had the had a completely zero alcohol pub in london and i went with mutual friend of ours tom who who did dry January four years ago and hasn't gone back to drinking anything. Well done, Tom. Went with him and he hated it because he wanted to be around people Who's having a livelier it. time. Yeah. It's if everyone's on no alcohol, it's quite boring. And it's not that you want someone to get up on the table and dance naked or 
vomit in a bucket or whatever it may be. But yeah, are we going back to the Downing Street parties again now? Whatever happens at work gatherings, yeah. Um, uh, but you do want there is a sort of energy to it, and as you say, there's it's a kind of a social. It's the social interaction. It's like a social trade off of um, conversation, and as you say, there's there's a ritual to. And like going to the kitchen, making yourself a drink, doing all of that, pouring something into the glass, having it look right, rather than something fizzy and sugary, or yeah, I'm just going to drink squash. You, it's all part of the same. You're, you're participating in the same kind of experience, even without the the booze. Yeah, with you, yeah, with you, one hundred percent. I just, it's that whole thing of being part of what's going on, but you're not. You're not making a point of it. You're kind of just enjoying what's going on around you. And I agree with Tom that it's because I did quite a bit of driving backwards and forwards to Stoke to Manchester over over Christmas and New Year. And if everyone had been sober, I'm not saying that all of my family were absolutely off their faces because they weren't, mm-hmm. but people were having a good time, we're having a couple of drinks. And if none of us had been drinking, it kind of would have diluted the atmosphere somewhat then it would feel like a work gathering (laughs) we're not going to get away from this at all are we (laughs) so but i I see and yeah i mean and i'm so in terms of i'm I'm kind of with you as well in terms of things i've done so far this year it's been quite a slow steady start have gone back um doing a piece for sainsbury's magazine on british breakfast and as part of that ended up back in the the polo bar which was the original 24-hour place in the city when my early banking days used to pop in there every now and again. So it was really nice to go back there, have a very good English breakfast, which is on the Starters and Sides podcast. Other than that, Matt's pretty much had a pie at the uh, the windmill in Mayfair a week or so ago. That was that was great. Got to try something recently, um, a company called Forest Edge Gelato, Got a little shop in Christchurch, tiny production of phenomenally good ice cream. Well, sorry, phenomenally good gelato. Um, hopefully they're spreading their wings a bit and coming into more into London. Uh, will be available in a few restaurants and stuff uh, ASAP. So I keep an eye out for, for their stuff. Um, and apart from that, that's kind of it. It's been, it's been a very low-key start. It's Again, there is still this strange thing of you get sat very close to another table and you're like I don't know if I want to do this Mm. no I'm with you I I I get it I think for a lot of people that's going to be around for a little while yeah you know I think that it does come into the consideration when Nancy and I are going for something to eat or a drink of it being busy and um, we were due to go to a gig um, last night and we were actually quite glad when it was cancelled because we were a bit, mm, we've got to get there. What's it going to be like on the tram? Then when you actually get into the venue and as much as we wanted to see this band, um, we were quite relieved when it got cancelled because it kind of takes the pressure off. Yeah. But what can you do? You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. the way it is. It's, going it's to be getting there. We're, we're getting there. It is that, yeah, if, if people are being a little more, wary, a little more cautious. I think that's good. does feel that the majority of people, certainly on public transport in London, most people are back to wearing masks. Um, it's People are giving each other a little bit of distance still. Um, it's, yeah, so whether we've... 
got through it and escaped unscathed so far, or whether we had it and didn't realise. Who knows? But yeah, keep doing your vaccines. Keep doing. I the do. Vaccine. I do look forward to the day when we can have one of these podcasts where we don't have to mention it, <laughs> where we can have a work event without having to mention it. Yeah, we'll get and that. That will be one big work event. <laughs> we'll get there, mate. We'll get there. So, so um, uh, you you've been busy or well, busy just before Christmas, um, uh, with a with a dinner and a and a by a chef called uh, Graham Tinsley. Yeah, we're very lucky that we got invited to uh, Carden Park, which is near Chester, a new restaurant called The Vines. Uh, the chef there, Graham, who uh, he's cooked for all kinds of people, you know, incredible wealth of experience. I think for me, when we actually, they were showcasing their tasting menu that's going to be launched uh, within the next few weeks. Uh, his passion for what he does was incredible. He came out talk through every dish as we were going uh, yeah just it, it was a great experience and lo- luckily I had the chance to to have a bit of chat with him after that the, we'd been to the tasting menu and basically this is what he'd got to say welcome to to the stars inside podcast um obviously I'm going to start with the obvious and the the typical question but how have kind of the last couple of years been for you and for your team? Oh, God, well, <laughs> I'm just hoping it doesn't come by again. Mm. Um, I think like everyone, it, it's been hard, especially especially the first lockdown, which came as a surprise. Um, I was driving home. i just left work. So I was driving home when the Prime Minister came on the radio and uh, announced the fact that we were closing down. So I had to turn the car around, get back to the hotel as fast as I could. Um and, and sort the team out, and not just the team. It was it, it was Mother's Day weekend that weekend, mm. so we bought all the food. In. I think it was a Thursday. Was it a Thursday night? I can't I think remember so. now. Yeah. I think so. But we, we bought all the food in for for Mother's Day, and we were told we we're going to close down the next day. So all that had to be sorted out. We um, we froze as much as we could. All the fresh food. Um, we give some of it to the staff who were obviously going on furlough. Um, other stuff like some of the bulk stuff like bread, um, pasta we gave to food banks um, and then what we did we just we, we just give the kitchen a, a massive deep clean uh, and then locked it up right. um, myself and my head chef we worked all the way through furlough because as you can imagine we've got a £70 million asset here mm. um, with, no, with no lock on the front door and no lock on the back door because we're never ever closed of course. You know, we're open 365 days a year and, and residents have got to have access to the hotel at all times. So um, the senior team um, stayed on all the way through lockdown. We, we did various shifts to make ensure that there was always somebody here and always some somebody manning the telephones because you can imagine people were booked, booked weddings and conferences and they wanted to know what was going on. Of course. And it was hard at the because nobody, nobody had a clue how long this was going to last. Um, our owner um, decided that, right, if, if, if we're locked down, let, let's get as much done as we possibly could. I had a brand new floor put in the kitchen. Um, we had lots of maintenance um, done within the hotel. So that meant that we had um, contractors and tradesmen coming in. So they had to be fed. I also had 40 living in staff who couldn't get home. I had South Africans, I had French, I had Polish. 
and they all needed feeding as well because you know they was they were stuck. They were in a bit of limbo, even though they could they couldn't work, so, but they were still living in. Mm-hmm. So we had to look after them as well. As far as my team that were on furlough, um, we constantly updated them on social media, took photographs of all the um, refurbishment that was going on throughout the hotel. Um, and then once restrictions started to lift, I think the first things for us as a resort was golf, open air. So yeah. then I brought a couple of back to, to man the, the halfway houses at the um, on the golf courses. Um and that, that was it, really. Um, when we eventually got them back, um, and I don't think anybody realised just how long this was going to be, they were rusty. They were very rusty. Mm. You know, you can imagine some of these boys who were like 18, 19 years, I don't just think they're not lads like, but, you know, sitting on their Xboxes and Playstations for, for six months, you know, it was hard for them to do a full shift again. They were getting tired after an eight-hour shift. Mm. And, they'd, and they'd got rusty in the knife skills and the... Uh, simple things like cooking a steak, you know, whereas you never think about having to cook a rare medium and a well-done steak. It's, it's like common common nature. They'd forgotten all that. It was like starting from scratch again. It was really, really weird. Hmm. Um, so much so that when the second lockdown came, I actually brought them in for training and, and kept them, kept them um, busy doing little, um, little tasks, maybe... You know, making things that I could never get them to. I could never get them to get, especially young kids. I could never get them together in a wallow before. So I did little demonstrations on how to make an omelette, how to fillet fish, how to bone out meat, just to get them get them in and look a bit of team building as well. Brilliant, brilliant. But yeah, you know, I'm not the. We're not the only hotel that suffered. You know, we've got. It, it, it was it's world. It was worldwide. I'm sure other people had the same problems as we did. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, picking up on that with the you know when you're saying with the the different nationalities of the team and everything else. I mean, what are your thoughts as regards things like obviously with Brexit and and those kind of things and staffing? Are you are you concerned about that? Very much so. I think staff staffing is going to be the industry's biggest problem. Um, I'm having problems with ingredients at the moment, and that's a little bit of a Brexit thing. Um, and Although it's a pain, we can change menus, we can alter recipes slightly, but the shortage of staff is something that really scares me. In fact, it's something that myself and my head chef, Harry, who's been with me for many years now, um, we talk we talk about constantly what what's going to happen with this industry. Um, there's only there's only so much you can charge for a meal. Mm. There's only so much you can charge for a plate of food. So you can't just keep putting the wages up uh, when somebody has a little bit of a tiff and think, oh, the, the hotel down the road's offered me an extra 50p an hour or whatever. There's only so much you can you can do. So what do we do to make the industry more enjoyable and exciting, you know, to get young people to come into it? I, you know, I'm at, I'm at a dead end with it. You know, I've, I've no idea. We've tried to get, um, like, an apprentice scheme going, but there's, there's just... There's just nothing out there. It's unbelievable, you know. And it's um, as a, as an industry, it, it's yes, it's hard, and I I understand that. And when I was coming um, into the industry 40, 42, 43 years ago, I remember the executive chef. This was a middle in Manchester where they did my apprenticeship. He got me in the office and he said, um, "Apologise for my French accent," but he said. <laughs> um, 
you'll be working weekends, you'll be working nights, you'll be working when everybody else is having fun. And I, yes, chef, I understand. And this is what this is something you're trying to sell to people. Mm. You will be working weekends, you will be working nights, you'll be working all the busy times when people enjoy themselves. We're coming up to a festive season now. And the guys will be working all over Christmas and New Year, although I'm pretty good with my notes as I, I go around and speak to them and it, it normally works out that the older members of the team want Christmas off and the younger members want New Year off, so it, it, it works its way out. Mm. But, you know, in, for me personally, this industry has been amazing. You know, I've, you know, I'm a young lad from um, a small mining town in Lancashire, St. Helens, um, and I remember when I was going to take my careers and I spent, went to speak to the careers teacher, they had no idea about being a chef, absolutely nothing. You know, mm. the, the, the only thing they could tell you was to go to a local polytechnic and, and do a course there, yeah. was I didn't want that. I, from, an early, from a very early age, I decided I wanted to do an apprenticeship and get into a big hotel in either Liverpool or Manchester because there was nothing for me in St. Helens. Um, and I've travelled the world. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to cook in places where people could only ever get to see on TV, like palaces, stately homes, number 10, the House of Commons. I've cooked for people that the normal person would ever, never, ever dream of meeting. You know, so um, it's been very good to me. And yes, it's hard, um, but you and you and you and you probably will lose your friends f- who you used to have years and years ago at school and everything else. But um, you make new friends within the industry. You know, I, most of my friends now and my my network is is either chefs or people who work in hotels around the world. You know, it's. Um, yeah, it's one of those things. How do we get it? How do we? How do we entice them in? Mm. That will be my biggest problem, and not not just me. It's, and we've seen it now. It's an industry. It's a worldwide problem getting people to come into this industry. You know, they see they see football players earning stupid salaries. You know, I went to I went to Manchester City last weekend to watch Everton and Everton, and I was talking to the executive chef there who used to work for me. And he was telling me his revenue on food for that week because he had he had um, a midweek European game, he had the, the Sunday game, and he had the Saturday game. And his um, his revenue for food was something about ninety thousand. Well, that won't even pay for one football player. No, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. When you put it like that, it is absolutely crazy. I mean, just going back to the when you talk about the palaces that you've cooked in, and and you know, number ten and the royal household. How does, from your point of view, how does kind of designing menus and coming up with, with dishes vary compared to, say, the fantastic tasting menu that I was really privileged to, to, to try a couple of weeks ago. Um, is there a different approach that you've got to it, or, or how do you go about it? Um, <clears throat> well, the difference between the tasting menu and, and uh, another menu is obvious. You know, it's a tasting menu. It's got more courses. Um, the menu is longer because we're trying to give you a taste of our skills from the kitchen and they're also very small enough um, um, and, the, and the team loved doing it you know it's our first at Carden you know I've done many many tasting menus in, in other places and, but this has been our first and, and having the vines now has given give us that vehicle to, to do that sort of thing um, when it comes to designing menus for the royal household um, it really carries the, the same concept it's seasonality and the occasion um, 
the hardest luncheon I ever had to do for Her Majesty was a few years ago when I cooked for two royal households. Um, I don't know if you remember, it was probably um, 2009, 10, some, something around there. And we, um, I don't know what, what to call it, we, we, we went into um, ooh, a partnership with, with Qatar to buy all the gas, buy some of the gas. So they decided to hold a luncheon, or the Queen would hold a luncheon for the Qatarian royal family down in, down in West Wales where the gas was coming to, it's Milford Haven. So I had to do a, um, a menu taste for the two royal households. So you've got our royal household, you've got the Qatarian royal household. Now, their, ide- their ideas on food were completely different. And I don't just mean um, the ingredients that went into the meal, it was the actual occasion. Arabic, Arabic people um, like to show off, show wealth, show hospitality by giving large banquets with lots and lots of courses. Now you can imagine our queen, she's quite old. I, I normally say when, you, when, you're, um, when, you, when you're cooking for the queen, you've got to treat it a little bit like you're cooking for your grandmother. She doesn't eat that much. It's more of an occasion for her. Um, most of the time, she'll just push the food around the plate and talk to people on her left and on her right because that is what it, that's what it's all about. So I had to come up with a menu and there was a little bit of oohing and ahhing and shoved another couple of little courses there and banged some canopies in and a little bit of, uh, I'd say, larger petty fours at the end of it to make it a little bit more substantial. And I remember at the end of the, the function, and we were lining up to meet Her Majesty and um, I think we called the Emir of Qatar. I can't remember now the, the actual, um, I don't think it's a king, is it? Is it Emir? Um, we, we would meet them all after the function and she walked past me and she shook my hand and she said, that was rather a large meal. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we, 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 we go for the occasion, we go for senior seasonality, Exactly the same as what we would do if we were designing a menu within the hotel. I mean, just with the, the, the ingredient side of things, I mean, when, when you did the tasting menu um, at the Vines and when you were describing each dish and there's so much emphasis and passion around such as like the, the mussels and things being locally sourced. I mean, how important is that to you? And, and is that going to be a bit of a problem going forward? Or do you think the local thing is going to keep... Been, been really high on your priorities? I think it's going to be even more so. Um, I'm lucky because before the pandemic, I used to do a lot with with, with um, food festivals. I used to do demonstrations at Mould, Tangothman, Brecon, Conway. Um, and in in between the, the, the cookery demonstrations, I'd, I'd go around the food tents you know, with all these little food, produ- food producers, lots of little bespoke... Um, single-handed people who would make chutneys and honeys and liqueurs and things like that. And I got I got to go around and talk to them, taste all the products. And then now and again, I'd come across, across something quite unique and I'd, I'd bring it back to the hotel and put it on my menus. Um, sustainability is going to be a massive thing. Um, and I think... Um, that's going to be. That's going to be. It's, it's always. It's always been there, and we've always. We've always sourced locally. Um, I think people now, because of all the 
all the things that are on show, social media. You can, you've only got to go on uh, Facebook, Instagram now, and you can see all these things. And the home cook has been <clears throat> is far more educated now than they never than they ever used to be. And with that becomes our our customers. They're far more educated than what they used to be. So they're demanding that we use local food. They're demanding that we use things in season. You know, years and years ago, you'd, you'd get asparagus all the time. Um, you still can do. You can buy it from South America, but there's nothing like getting asparagus and looking forward to May when it comes out and then creating your dishes around that, that, that unique produce that's only available for a short period of time, May, June, and probably a week in July. Yeah, local, mm. local and, and, and sourcing is, is a massive thing. I mean, are there, are there any other things, Graham, that you think we should be looking out for as regards food and drink over the next 12, 18 months? Any new kind of trends or themes around food or dishes? I think plant-based is going to be massive. I really do. Um, I'll be, you know, I, again, I, I look online, I look at other, other hotels, other restaurants, and I see people now putting um, plant-based produce on their menus and even having plant-based, a, a plant-based, a separate plant-based menu. You know, we do it here. We have a vegan menu. We have a vegetarian menu. We have a halal menu. We have all these menus that you don't just have to choose off the main menu. We've separated them. So if we did do have people that come in who want a special diet, then we can give them their own menu. And that's, that's just a sign of the times and the world we're living in. Mm. Um, but yeah, plant-based, I think, is, is going to be massive. Some of the, there's some um, really big restaurants now that are, are turning over to, to plant-based. Um, you know, and even me as a carnivore, <laughs> um, I still love vegetables, I love salads. I think I eat a, a good balanced diet. Um, but we're, we're, we're really thinking about going more, more plant-based. Um, and we're going to make that we're going to make that jump in a couple of weeks' time because we're starting a new menu in Oldman Spa, and I think that's a good um, place to, to start something like this. Um, it's you, you've seen now Spa. Um, it's it's a, a very healthy environment. Um, so I think a plant based menu. Along with, we're not going to completely take fish and meat off the off the off the menu, but I think we're. We're not just going to play around with a little with a couple of plant-based dishes. We're going to really go and and, and put quite a few things on there, and we'll, we'll see how it goes over there. First of all, you just said that you you think you eat a, a balanced diet. I mean, when you're eating out, what's the kind of the go-to starter that you would go for, and what's the, always the the side that you're hoping is going to be on on a menu? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's nothing I don't like. Absolutely, absolutely nothing. Um, one thing I did try once that I just couldn't stomach, and that was a thing called natto. Um, I had the um, I had the Japanese football team staying here many years ago, and they brought with them this natto, which is a fermented soybean. And the older Japanese people eat natto, um, and the best way to describe it is like soybeans in in um, in like a like a slime, mm. absolutely unbelievable <laughs> to see. And they eat it with the chopsticks, and this slime is is dangling from the um, from the beans. And it is really a something that 
I couldn't stomach, and, and, I, and I've eaten any, I've eaten everything. Um, my go-to things, um, I love Asian food. My son lives in Singapore. We go to see him quite often, um, and I just love anything Asian. You know, whether it's Japanese. I've been lucky to go to Japan, Japan twice. Um, I cooked for the emperor here in '98 down in Cardiff, at Cardiff Castle, and on the back of that, I got invited to to Tokyo to do some cookery demonstrations. And we had in some wonderful places out there. And then I went back again um, 2002, but to Kyoto that time. Um, and again, you know, the, their food is, is just right up my street. So yeah, Asian food, anything Asian, that's me. And it's, um, it's, it's, sim- it's quick and simple to do it as well at home. You know, if I go home from work um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to cook something, um, for me and my wife, you know, to knock a, a quick stir fry together is quite easy, you know. So yeah, Asian food, fantastic. And I'm, I'm fish, you know. I, um, we used to own the Castle Hotel in Conway, so I was right on the coast. Um, very lucky to have a, a very good fish supplier there. And when I'm talking fresh fish, it was it, it was still moving when it would, would come to me, you know. So I do love fish, and the, and, and the good thing about fish is. Um, there's so many different varieties that that tends to different kinds of cooking. For instance, you can use a really hearty fish like monkfish um, for for a casserole. You know, and it, it's not going to overcook. You know, we, we do a nice one here. We're also buckle of monkfish with a, with a nice Milanese um, risotto and a tomato sauce. You know, and we do it on the bone like it like it should be. You know, for a proper mm. a proper osobuku with shin of veal. So if you keep the if you keep the monkfish on the bone and, and and do it the same way with the with the with the Milanese rice and the tomato sauce, it's a wonderful dish. So the fish blends itself to all different kinds of cooking, fast, long, um, pan frying, grilling. Oh, fish fish is is wonderful. I love fish. Really, I'm getting rather hungry now. Actually, just uh, hearing <laughs> that description. Um, I, just on the flip side of that, I'm kind of a bit of a thing that we ask a lot of people and we people email us about is the kind of little things that niggle you about food and drink like one of mine is unsalted butter i just don't see the point um <laughs> so we, you know we do that we will slice unsalted butter and sprinkle a little bit of sea salt on it so what, what, what's the point of that yeah. although we do it for show because we use a bit we use a little bit of charcoal sea salt right got you yeah and so, <laughs> someone else said skinny latte same thing what's the point yeah, with that someone yeah. else menus that mention the word allotment and things yeah. like that but is there is there anything that kind of you know a little peeve for you about anything food and yeah, drink? you know working in a big hotel like this and i've got um i think i've got 800 christmas dinners this week on top of everything else um we get a lot of diets you know sometimes you think you're working in in a hotel when you get when you have a big conference of two three hundred people and you get the list of all the different diets i think for me my peeve is fad diets mm. you know i can understand people can have medical i've got medical conditions and it requires them to eat certain kinds of foods and certain kinds of dishes. my wife's got crohn's you know so mm. i understand that you know certain foods can trigger that condition um, and i can understand for some people it's a lifestyle choice such as vegetarians and vegans gluten-free to a, to a certain extent but what I don't get is vegetarians that eat fish. You know, when I when I get when I get, oh, she's a vegetarian, but she'll eat fish. <laughs> well, that's that's a 
that's a bit of a peeve mm. to me. And also getting with chicken as well. We're vegetarian, but we eat white meat. So, you know, make your mind up, please. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been oh, great. Well, and and really looking forward to coming back to Carden Park. And as I say, the, the tasting menu from um, that I was there when you were there with the Bollinger and you know, it was just incredible um, absolutely incredible so yeah thank you so much for your time I'm, I really appreciate chatting to you um, and please make yourself known when you do come because remember I'm always in the back I don't get to see many people now I was hoping to get to speak to you actually at the tasting but you were so yeah. busy chatting to other people so no but yeah. thanks thanks so much Graham. I really appreciate it and uh, yep. yeah we'll definitely be back so I shall no doubt see you in the future What was really interesting for me, I don't know about you, Neil, about that. First of all, there was the uncertainty things around, you know, how quickly they had to shut things down, you know, the staff they got on site, you know, how Graham was on about there wasn't a front door and a back door that they could lock. They got all this stuff going on. Just that uncertainty, which is, for me, is still prevalent, that it's still there about, and we've talked about it every single episode. And like I say, I'm, I can't wait for the day we can talk about stuff without any uncertainty. But And then, of course, into the Brexit stuff and, it, you know, the staff and the ingredients, all of this stuff. And then on top of that, Graham is talking about how there's actually a difficulty in getting people into the industry in the first place. And for all of these different things, and I know other industries and sectors have got their own things that they've got and issues that they've got going on. But for hospitality, for me, it just seems it's like one thing after another. Yeah. I think the recruitment thing is going to be quite a big thing. I suspect we'll be touching on that with some other people over the course of the next few months. Uh, and certainly just the, I know the sheer number of people generally available, the, the, the pivoting that's happened already. I imagine there'll be more pivoting in, in some way, shape or form. As I say, we've, you know, we can't avoid the uh, the C word in the podcast. We think increasingly we're not going to be able to avoid the avoid the B word in the uh, in the podcast as well. Um, I think that's really going to start to to bite. Um, again, try not to be overly political. Anyone who's read my Twitter feed will know quite clearly my feelings on such uh, such matters. But I guess you know if we are going to try and make the best of it, maybe there is then the support for British. Food, seasonal ingredients, maybe that's ultimately better for the climate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So maybe there are, I know, small germs of uh, of, of hope and possibility and, and, and silver linings, tiny as they may be. Um, I guess we again suck it and see. I suppose it's um, yeah, we, will, I, we will find out. I just, I just really wish that you know, young. Young people that are either at school or going to college or they're thinking about what they want to do with their lives and their careers and stuff, you know, Graham's passion for for what he does and how he he so wanted to learn on the job, if you like, and not just do the theoretical stuff. And he that passion he's got for what I mean, when when we were there at the tasting menu and he's talking about, you know, how the locally sourced stuff and the passion he got for what he did, if people could see that, it's almost, it was almost like a TED talk. It was kind of, you know, really inspiring that I'd love young people, obviously everyone's virtually younger than us these days, to see it and feel it, to work in that industry. And I've always been a bit, I've always been a bit perplexed by 
when you go into Europe, when we're allowed, you know, if we're ever going to be allowed again, let's not go back to the B word. But if you go to a bar in Barcelona, like the staff, whether it's the waiting staff or, or whatever, it's seen as a career over yeah. there. It's seen as a respected kind of job. Whereas you often feel over here, there's a lot of people, it's kind of a stopgap or just yeah. something to earn a bit of pocket money, isn't it? No, indeed, indeed. No, we've not taken it that seriously. Again, yeah, as you say, hopefully that will that will change. I think. I mean, it's interesting when I when I left college, bit the idea of I know becoming a chef or or going into hospitality never crossed my mind. It wasn't seen as an option. Maybe now, maybe the rise of kind of food programming, um, sort of food publications, food websites, that people do have that much more exposure to it. So maybe, again, we can hope there's a few more people seeing it as a viable option. Um, and one of the reasons, I mean, you know, and we met, I'm sure we've talked about this before, um, on, on Starters and Sides, that, that we met through um, working together at the Abbott Hall, working um, and then working together on the Footloose, the listings magazine, and doing film reviews and stuff. And I used to do a lot of show busy things and a lot of film things. And kind of stepped away from that to get more involved with food and drink because food and drink people are nicer to be around. Mm. It is that enthusiasm. It is that love of what they do. It's that pride in what they do. It's it's not for the fame. It's not for the um, the, the, so the financial rewards necessarily. It's because they're really, really engaged. I mean, there's not been a single cheese maker I've ever met who did the, or oh, next time this, oh, yeah, this time next year will be millionaires. It's we have a lot of milk and we need to do something with it. Yeah. We've made this. We think it's quite tasty. What do you think? And so it's a lot more engaging to be around. And and I, I get it. As you say, if you can, if people can be there and engage with people on that level, then it's got to be good for the industry as a whole. And and we've got to find, I want to hopefully with one of the missions, I guess we, we have with the podcast is to, to give some of these people like Graham who, who's not a TV chef, who's not necessarily a big name, um, but give them a little bit of a, a platform to um, to share some of that love and some of that enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. I just, I'd love some of that to, you know, be out there and, and people can feel it. And just going back to what you were saying, I was chatting to my, my brother-in-law. He's, he's a chef at Tillingham, uh, the wine estate uh, down near Rye. And we were chatting over Christmas and, we were on about things like reviews of food and we were on about the hospitality industry in general and those that are in it, yeah, they're not in it to make a million pounds, but they're also in it to put out the best stuff that they can. And there's so much pride that goes into putting out a plate of food and there's so much pride that goes into brewing a really decent beer and cheese, like you're saying, things like that, that none of these people are deliberately going out there to make bad stuff they really want to do stuff and they really want to use whether it's local ingredients or you want to bring young people through the system whatever it is there's so much that's going on i just really hope that some of the negative stuff that gray and i were talking about around you know whether it's ingredients whether it's staff or whatever that it doesn't have such a damaging detrimental effect on the food and drink industry over the next six nine twelve months that it's almost becomes that they can't pull it back, if you know what I mean. And we'll see, you know, again, we don't want to be too negative about it, but I guess it's one of those things you've always got to be thinking about. And 
where it's going to go and how it's going to be. Um, I mean, what was interesting for me chatting to Graham as well, he was talking about how uh, he thinks plant-based stuff is going to be bigger and bigger and bigger over the next, you know, next 12 months or so. I've heard loads of other little things. People are talking about uh, Caribbean food, again, is going to be um, something that people are going to be talking more about and there's going to be, we're going to see more of it. Uh, gin-infused food. I've heard all kinds of things. Um, one sherry, people are talking about in the drinks industry in particular, about sherry being the next gin and all this kind of stuff. And I know we hear tequila these Tequila being the next year. vodka. Say That's again? Tequila being the next vodka. There you go. The tequila's expected to outstrip vodka sales this year, apparently. So We'll see. We'll see. I mean, I don't know. I know anything else you might have heard on the grapevine, as it were? Not not particularly. I mean, I think that on the plant-based thing um, is obviously growing and growing and growing. We're in the, the middle now of so-called Veganuary. Um, on the, the, what I, again, what I hope from that is it's going to prompt um, debate, and I'm still um, quite anti I know, the Beyond Meats and the, the bits and pieces, things that have been made from mystery pea proteins and such like with as far as I can tell, none of the producers <laughs> reveal the the production um, sort of methods, the, what else is used, where it's come from, where it's been grown. Um, yeah, whether it's just yeah some sort of monoculture thing from a, across acres and acres of polytunnels in random bits of Europe or whatever. Um, so my, my argument with anyone that's going to work about plant-based, and brilliant, eat vegetables. Vegetables are delicious. We've got loads of them. They're wonderful. <laughs> Don't fuck about with them and try and turn them into things that look like meat. <laughs> yeah. It's if you want to be. If I was you just going on to your what you hate about food and drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Well, but it's it's. I'm sure there are there may well be people doing this kind of manufactured meat thing. Um, a, I don't really understand why uh, everything kind of vegan and plant based has to try and look like a meat product. I find that slightly odd. Or when people say, come and try our vegan meatballs. You know, well, they're, they're, they're just balls, aren't they? That's, that's, you, that's an oxymoron. You cannot have vegan meatballs. And I understand why they're doing it. But again, this kind of obsession with making things look like other things. And so that, have you ever had a piece of steak dyed orange and carved to look like a carrot? It's very much one-way traffic on that. Well, now you mention it, I was at this garden party at 10 Downing Street. And <laughs> I get where you're coming from. But I, I know this is this is a, a conversation for another podcast. Absolutely. Don't you think it, this all, all comes back to so much of you eat with your eyes and that kind of thing? So if it, uh, yeah, if it sure looks it like a burger, yeah. then you're more likely to eat it even though it's vegan, you're more likely to eat it because it looks like a meat burger. And I guess if, if people have grown up eating certain things, and, and I, I, I understand it, I get it. It's the, as, as I say, this this rush to, oh, plant-based is healthier. And you go, well, not necessarily. It's not necessarily better for the climate. It depends on the plant and what you've done to it. As I said, if people want to go vegan and vegetarian, absolutely fine. We eat a load of vegetables at home. Um, but they're vegetables, and we. Well, I'm going to say one thing in one thing in that, yeah. that mystifies me, and maybe people can email us. Uh, we're at the bar at startersandsides.com. 
if you want to email me, you want to message us. But one thing that's always fascinated me is, like Graham mentioned in the interview about getting asparagus from all over the world. You can get it whenever you want. What's the difference between having asparagus shipped in from wherever in the world compared to having a cow that was, you know, reared 10 miles away? Like, from a, like, yep. From a, a carbon footprint point of view, maybe I'm being really thick. Well, I've got a cold, so you've got to excuse me. <laughs> but no, if you're flying yeah. asparagus in from wherever in the world to make sure it's in Waitrose tomorrow, but then your butcher down the road has got meat that has been reared and sourced 10 miles away, I kind of don't – that doesn't make that much sense to me. No, indeed. Uh, so my, my argument for a lot of this has been have, we have friends who um, live in Spain and when we've gone over to see them, the first 45 minutes, 50 minutes of the journey, you just go past acre after acre of polytunnel, which is growing unseasonal veg for the rest of Europe. And yeah, well, the, that's killed off insect population, which kills off small birds, which kills off small mammals, which kills off bigger mammals. And these, you've created like a microclimate, which is completely unnatural. Um, so when people have come after me, sort of eating a seasonal tomato, when go, I can't believe you still eat steak, go well. I'm I'm in a very fortunate position, and I'm, I'm the first to admit it. That in many cases, the the steaks that we've got to eat, I've been to the farms, I've seen the cows in situ, I've I've met the farmers through through writing work, through the the Goodman book, through other things. And this is a cow that's had a really happy life. It's not been force fed things that cows aren't meant to eat. It's been running around eating grass. It's had a fantastic natural life. Um, it is not the mass produced 3,000 cows in the shed, the, 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 I don't know, the, the big American sort of mass production thing. I agree from the vegan veganism, plant based thing, we need to eat more. Or we need to eat less of that. We need to kind of dismantle that. But we also need to do the same thing in mass production of veg and mass production of unseasonal veg because that's not doing the planet any favours either. So there's a much bigger there's a much bigger story, there's a much bigger picture. I think that's here. what you might call a tangent. <laughs> I think, you know, we always talk about getting off on tangents. I think that was a big one that we've just gone off on. Yeah, um, but it's, but it's, we, it's we'll, we'll come back to it. I, mean, I think I, we should. I it's it's going to be the, the I think it's going to be a, a core thing for a, a lot of time. Again, the the, the climate um, arguments. The um, again, and I, I, I keep saying this. I've said it in print two or three times now. I happily say it on air here. Um, if any manufactured meat, vegan meat, whatever producer wants to bring me in, wants to show me exactly how it's made and where it's grown, I would be delighted to do whatever I can to publicise it and promote it if it's being done in the best possible ways. Consider the gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> Please share on Twitter. Please share on Instagram. Send us an email. <laughs> Whatever it may be. But consider the challenge properly thrown down. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely hope somebody can. Really do hope somebody can. But I've, I've pushed back on two or three occasions, and then it's just been what crickets, utter utter silence, no response. Yeah, well, come on. Um, 
Well, I was hearing a story from my butcher the other day about um, the venison that, quite frankly, had a better life than me. (laughs) You know, and I know they're trying to sell it. Of course they are, but they're brilliant butchers. They're absolutely superb butchers. They know exactly where all the other meats come from. But they were talking to me about the venison, and I'm like, sounds like a dream world to me. (laughs) Um. But anyway, yeah, let's not be frivolous about it. <laughs> I've got a cold. I can just excuse everything with a cold for this podcast. I can't it's even hear what I'm saying. So, no, I can't even hear what I'm saying. My ears are blocked. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think what we'll do, shall we leave it there for this week? I think we should. We, we, we've gone off on tangents. We've changed the world. We've thrown down the gauntlet. We've uh, done our little Ben Elton bit. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can... Put that one to bed. Well, I'm off. I'm off to a garden party work event. I just need to go pick up some cheese from Tesco Express. I've and... I've got a lot of WhatsApp messages I need to delete. Yeah, but I think you should uh, keep an eye out for emails for the next work event. That won't be a work event. That'll be a god. No, absolutely. Anyway. And on the subject of emails, the bar. <laughs> it's the bar at startandsize.com. The bar at startersandsize.com. Drop us an email. If there's stuff you want us to have a ramble about and go off on tangents about, please do email us, you know, messages on Twitter and Instagram, whatever. We we love getting your stuff through. We love some of the comments that people have sent us. And and you again keep your what's always got to be on your uh, your starters list, what's your go-to starter, what's your go-to side, what are your food and drink peeves? I think Neil's have now shifted dramatically over the past I've, I've, just, got, I've just got about a list of like 87. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, so yeah, please do get in touch. We love hearing from you. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we shall be speaking to you again very soon. Thanks a lot. Cheers.